The Amazon rainforest is one of the world's main sources of oxygen, but it is very vulnerable to wildfires because of deforestation and aggressive farming. America's now correspondent Jerry Haddon traveled to the wetlands of the Pantanal in southern Brazil, an area that could not escape the flames in 2020 and 2021. So how big of a menace are the wildfires in the Pantanal to the global environment? That is today's focus on the America's Now podcast. Joining us from Barcelona, Spain is Jerry Haddon. Jerry, welcome to the show and thank you so much for connecting with us. Glad to be here, Elaine. Well, the piece that we aired on America's Now was named The Forever Fires, and that title seems at the beginning a little exaggerated, but then you see the story, which is heartbreaking, and you get the impression this is an endless problem. Are they really forever fires? I think forever is the fear because the trend is towards bigger and longer lasting forest fires, both in the Amazon and, and to the south in the Pantanal. You know, there have been fires in the Amazon jungle and in the Pantanal and in just about every forest in the world since time immemorial, but they're traditionally caused by lightning and lightning is generally followed by rain. So fires have been a way for forests to actually burn, yes, but also to rejuvenate as part of a natural process. But what's been happening in Brazil and in natural areas all over the world is sort of a twofold phenomenon. You have the encroachment of humans into the area and the, the cutting down of forest and the intentional lighting of fires to clear forests for grazing or for farming. And those kinds of fires get out of control. And you combine that with changing climate, drier seasons, hotter weather, shorter rainy seasons, and these fires suddenly become next to impossible to control. Well, you've certainly have reported from Brazil before. Logistically, talk to us about the journey over and what it was like once you arrived standing in the middle of the Pantanal. Well, COVID aside and all the PCR tests and antigen tests that one has to do these days to move around the world, getting into the Pantanal you know, required flying into you know, one of the major cities and then taking a secondary flight and then traveling by car on what's known as the Trans-Pantanal Highway, which is hardly a highway, it's a dirt road. I think it's about 120 kilometers, 130 kilometers long. You go over about 140 rickety wooden bridges to get into the heart of the Pantanal where we went. Each bridge is sort of, you know, you get to it and it's a mystery, you know, can we cross it in the car or has it collapsed? Because they're just maintained locally by residents, they're made of wood. Uh, many of them were badly burned in the fires last year, and sometimes they just get washed out during the, the, the rainy season. So it's quite an adventure just to travel that small distance. It takes four or five hours. And once you get in, I mean, we got in in the middle of the night, actually. When you wake up in the morning, you know, you walk outside and you're, you're in this lush, you know, jungly, swampy region, and it's, you know, overwhelms the senses. And you, immediately you don't have a sense that actually there'd ever been a fire at all. And that's a part of what's so confusing about the forest fires in the region. If you're there after the rainy season, because things grow so quickly, you don't necessarily see signs of the blazes from the months before. Wow. Well, I, I want us to take a listen to Elton Lara, who is a guide and photographer at uh, what they call the Jaguar Camp. Jerry, tell us more about him and, and what he does there. Yeah, well, he is. He's a hotel owner and a tour guide. And 
Uh, you might call him a citizen scientist. He's a guy who's obsessed with and passionate about conserving the jaguar in the region. And he also makes his living off of, you know, citing them. So he's got, you know, a dual interest in preserving, you know, nature and the wildlife in the area because uh, it's of its beauty and it's and the necessity of it for biodiversity in the region, but also it's how he makes a living. He's a guy who um, he has meticulously photographed and cataloged the jaguar population in the Pantanal now for more than a decade and has spotted hundreds and can recognize by their, the, the patterns of their spots on their fur, you know, all the different ones that he knows and you know, he names them. And he, then he, he uploads all this information onto his website and makes it available to the conservation community, to the scientific community, to world environmental authorities, to anyone who wants to you know, understand what's happening to that jaguar population in the area where he lives. So he is, he's fighting for nature. Is, is there a point where uh, he will ever give up? Is this his life? Yeah, this is his life. I mean, this is, this is what he does. I mean, would he give up? I suppose he'd give up if the next round of forest fires came uh, roaring through and, and took his hotel away. Uh, but then again, maybe he'd rebuild the next year. I, I don't know. But it certainly, I mean, the impression he gave us was that this, this is where he's from. This is where he plans to stay. And he's dedicating his life to this cause. Explain first, if you can, um, you know, the Pantanal may not be as well known as the Amazon um, region of Brazil. Yeah, the Pantanal is actually to the south of the Amazon jungle, and it's a speck in comparison to the size of the Amazon itself. But it's a crucial wetland. So when I say it's a speck, I mean, it it encompasses hundreds of thousands of, of square kilometers. It's a vast area, but everything in Brazil, of course, is to a different scale. So and it depends entirely on the Amazon for its water. I mean, it's, it's a wetlands. You might even call it a, you know, a marshlands or a swamp. But if it doesn't rain in the Amazon, if the Amazon isn't producing the same amount of moisture, creating what people call a river in the sky, essentially, um, the Amazon you know, is absorbing uh, lots of water and then through the vegetation that grows in the Amazon, it's releasing a lot of moisture into the air. And that Moisture in the air travels south, and it actually brings rain to much of South America, not just the Pantanal. So the concern is that the smaller the Amazon gets, the drier it gets, the less water that makes it to the Pantanal, and the more susceptible the Pantanal becomes to fires as well. It's like turning off the faucet or, or, or damming a river. Mm-hmm. America's now has reported on wildfires in Chile and in California here in the United States, and you always find a system and there are resources to fight these wildfires. How ready is this region, this enormous place when it comes to a system or resources? Well, the world saw last year that it was essentially not ready at all to deal with the fires. Uh, They burned largely out of control until the rains came again. I mean, the Pantanal in the park where we were you know, something like 93% of the park was burned out. That gives you a sense of how little control there was and the, the low capacity there was to fight the fire. This coming season, the fire season is upon us again. The Pantanal had a very short rainy season and it's drier now than it was before last year's fire started. So the fear is that unless the Brazilian government steps up and pours a lot of resources into controlling the blazes, they're going to actually be worse this year. That brings us to illegal mining and deforestation. You've reported on those issues um, when it comes to the Peruvian 
Amazon. And you recently came back from Central America reporting on severe weather because of climate change. Talk to us about the level of devastation that you've seen in nature caused by humans. Well, uh, you know, it depends where you go, but the, certainly the, the, the mines in the Peruvian Amazon, uh, that's, you know, 100% destruction. What you're looking at there, you're in the middle of the Amazon jungle, but what you're standing on is dry sand peppered with brown, dried out, limbless trunks of trees as far as the eye can see, with the ground sort of pocked with these big ponds where they're slewing out the water and pumping for gold dust. So that's like this post-apocalyptic, you know, nightmare vision of, of what people can do to nature if no one is, you know, controlling their, their activity. You know, that said, these are, are desperate people who don't have any other way of making a living. It's very complicated. In Central America, the, it's, it's less about humans destroying the land and more about mother nature making farming uh, or coastal living almost impossible these days because of the extremity of droughts and the ferocity of hurricanes and those you know, coming uh, one after the other, the extreme sort of swinging from one extreme to the other, back and forth, back and forth. And the poor local people who are used to a bit of stability in the weather to know how much, you know, rice or, or beans uh, they would be able to grow suddenly find themselves losing out every single year. And often, as we know, striking out for other places where there's more opportunity. And so, Jerry, with this um, story that you did in the Pantanal, is there something that you took away from it, um, something that really struck you, that left with you coming out? Uh, well, I think, you know, on the one hand, the resilience of the local people to stay and the ingenious ways they've come up with to protect, you know, their own personal property, at least, you know, they, you know, I'm talking about inhabitants within the Pantanal itself, who certainly on their own can't put these big fires out, but they can protect their little homestead. But, but also the other thing that really struck me, and it, it's a problem, actually, in terms of getting the message out about how bad things are down there, is that when you go, I mean, we were there some four or five months after the last major blazes had gone out and everything looks green. And if you fly a drone over the Pantanal, you know, looking down upon it, everything seems fine. But actually when you go up close, you see that what's happened is the whole place was burned, brown, black, you know, countless hundreds of thousands of animals perished. But it's such a lush region by nature that the creepers and the vines grow by meters a week. The plants grow so fast. And what they've done is they've covered over all the burned trees. So it's everything looks green and fine. But if you just sort of peel back all the vines and look underneath, you see that what they're clinging to is the dead foliage and the dead trees. So, you know, when the fires were first put out or when they were actually happening, the images were all over the world. And it was striking to see all these, you know, animals that had been caught up in the fire and trapped and had died and the heroic efforts of you know, people to try to save them. And then just a few months later, you know, the impact of what you see visually has disappeared. Right, and it gives the impression that the recovery time is very quick and that would just continue, right? I mean, you assume that, okay, if this happens again next season, it'll just go right back and recover. Very exactly, quickly. you'll sort of think, oh, well, what's the big deal? Sure, it burns, but by a year later, it's all grown back. Well, something different has grown back. And what one of the things that Ailton Lara was trying to explain to us was that, you know, if this happens three, four, five, six times, the Pantanal is going to reach a tipping point where its biodiversity will be gone. It will essentially be filled with toxic creepers and little else. 
which means no more habitat for the fauna in the region from, from the caiman to the jaguars, to the small rodents, to the birds. They'll have nothing to eat because their food supplies, their diverse food supplies will have all burned up. So, it, you know, a forest can burn down in one year, but it takes to get back to where it was, it might take an, a 10 or 20 years. And that's, you know, that's fast in, in the rainforest compared to, say, an alpine forest, which would take longer. But if every year the beginning of the rejuvenation disappears again and again and again and again, five or six times, then you might reach a point where it's just it's not going to come back. So you travel all over the world. You've uh, been back and forth to Latin America over and over again many times. And you're back in Spain. What would you say worries you. And then on the flip side of that, what gives you hope when you look at what's happening there? Well, I think that, um, you know, unfortunately, as a species, we only react when our own house is on fire. We have trouble with collective actions. And so what, what weighs on me is that we're, we're always a few steps behind when it, when it comes to reacting to environmental disasters. And, you know, I mean, hope is, uh, it's hard to come by, you know, you see individual actions, but it really is going to take very radical steps by governments to curb greenhouse gas emissions, to reduce the creation and the use of plastics in the world that are, you know, flooding our oceans and now being discovered in our, in the very air we breathe. So you asked me today, honestly, I'm a bit short on hope, but I'm, you know, like everybody else, I won't give up. It's just, uh, you know, you come back from a place like the Pantanal or, or, or Central America where you, you see how the climate is changing and you, you, you ask yourself, you know, are, are we too late? We'll leave it there. Jerry Haddon, thank you so much for joining us on the America's Now podcast. Thanks for having me, Elaine. And thank you for being with us on the America's Now podcast. To listen to the first full season of the America's Now podcast, Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just search for America's Now, CGTN America. Our executive producer is Jose Velasquez. Our sound editor is Caroline Allnut. And our copy editor is Joe Zarenko. The head of the Features Unit is Umberto Duran. And I am Elaine Reyes in Washington, D.C.